Well, my name is Josh. Again, I'm glad you're with us this morning as we're starting a brand new teaching series called Adore, God's gift of marriage, sex, and singleness. Because as we've talked all year long, God is driving us, we believe, into new places and new spaces. And one of the things, if we are to be builders of our city, is it must first begin in the most intimate, close places of our own homes. And for so many of us, we have been given competing messages when it comes to what relationships look like or should look like, that we as a body need to just pause and drink deeply of what Scripture says. And so what I'm going to say to you this morning is whether you are single, dating, wish you were dating, hello, married, or maybe you're single again. We're going to talk about a variety of things that each week, if you will dial into it, it will help not only craft direction for your future, but give you context for your presence. And so what I want to do this morning is we kind of start, I want to lay the table and sort of set things out for us. This is a bit of an introduction because here's the reality. In our culture, we are given some very profound ideas or ideas that we assume are profound when in fact, upon further investigation, they have some real problems with them. And this morning, I want us to start by looking at one assumption, and it is the underlying assumption to almost all of the problems that you have experienced or you will experience in any relationship, whether it's a romantic one or a platonic one. In fact, this assumption is so common, it is hard not to believe it about your relationships, But before I tell you what it is, let's just talk a little bit about assumptions. Two things you need to know about assumptions. Number one, first thing is that your assumptions affect your decisions. And we all kind of know this intuitively, that what we assume to be true influences what we do, right? Whatever you assume is true is what you will do. So if you assume gravity works, here's just sort of a basic level. If you assume gravity works, it will influence the decisions you make. And this is true across the board, not just when it comes to relationships, So the second thing, though, is this. Your assumptions are invisible to you. They influence what you do, and they're invisible to you. There are things that are so normal within our culture that we don't even see them anymore. Let me give you a real simple example. Suppose, Lindsay, and I invite you guys over for dinner tomorrow night. You come rolling in. We open the door and say, it smells wonderful. What are we having for dinner? And my sweet wife in her apron goes, I'm so excited. I made my specialty. Grilled horse. How many of you are going to just kind of go and slowly back away and you're out? Because we don't eat horse. Now, you may pet the horse, you may ride the horse, but you do not eat Mr. Ed. Anyone get that generational comment? All right, y'all my people. Now, here's what's so funny about this. If you do any sort of world travel, you will know that horse is not only common, but it is a delicacy in other places, including China, Iceland, and there are other places where it is just sort of the thing you eat. But in the States, no, no, we want a steak. So why is it that it's okay to eat Bessie the cow, but not Mr. Ed the horse? There are these assumptions that are built into our culture. Are you tracking with me? Let me give you one more. Why is it, gentlemen, that it is manly to cook outside on a grill, but if you go inside and cook inside, it's somehow not manly anymore? So you can go outside, you got your apron, you got your hat, you got your glove, you got your utensils, and you're king of the grill, but you go inside and you're a little Miss Prissy boy is the way you feel. 
Why is that? That is a cultural assumption that is so common that we just assume it is true without ever evaluating if it is true. Are you following with me on this? And so I want to share with you the one cultural assumption that is so pervasive. It's like going into swimming pool water. It's cold at first, but once you're in there, you become so accustomed to it, you don't notice it. And here it is. This is so important. If you are dating, if you're single, if you're married, this is the key cultural assumption that you are going to hear, if not personally experience. And here it is. My relationship is supposed to make me happy. That is the cultural assumption. That's where you go, that's it? And some of you are going, so what's the alternative? My relationship is supposed to make me unhappy? Well, thanks, preacher. But isn't this the cultural assumption that a relationship is healthy if it makes me happy? A relationship is supposed to fulfill me. And so we get these absurd comments. In fact, I used this one again on Sean Alex this past week. I shared it with him and he goes, I've never heard that before. And generationally, I felt very old all of a sudden, but, but, but my peeps just, um, Jerry Maguire, you what? Complete me. Congratulations. You're over 25 years old. That's great. This idea that to have a whole life means you need someone else. So you are unwhole. You are not Happy unless you are in a romantic relationship. And this could be no further from the truth. In fact, let's talk talk honestly about this. There's some major problems with this idea of happiness being the ultimate goal. In fact, if you evaluate it, you'll see that happiness cannot be the goal of a relationship. It is self-defeating. Here's why. Here's the first one. Happiness is a moving target. Isn't this true? How many of you bought something thinking it was the end-all, be-all? Only six months later, they bring out a brand new one, and you go, it's garbage. My happiness is gone. Or how many of us, in our 20s, there were certain things we thought, this is what will make me happy. And then when you get to your 30s, that's not what makes you happy anymore. Am I, are we together on this? And then you make it to your 40s, and what made you happy in your 20s and 30s? Not so much. Then your 50s, and so on. Because happiness is a moving target. It's why you buy that car, and it is not your favorite after a few years. Happiness is a moving target. The second thing about happiness is happiness is in conflict with itself. It is in conflict with itself. Let me give you an example. Last night, we were here to celebrate the life of Robin Burdine, and it was a beautiful service celebration of life. And then after the service, we went to the gym and had a fantastic meal. And let me tell you, I had a moment where my happiness was in conflict. And here it is. I want to be physically fit. I want to be in shape. Quick show of hands. Anyone else want to be in shape? Anyone else? I've got a, I've got a word for you this morning. This is going to encourage you. Here's what you say. If you want to be in shape, here's what you need to know. Round is a shape. Congratulations. I want to be in shape, but I also wanted to eat this piece of pie that would make your mama cry. It was just beautiful. So I have being in shape and pie, two forms of happiness that do not work together. Your happiness is in conflict with itself, and this is true also in relationships. Third thing is that happiness is getting your way. Happiness is about getting your way, isn't it? Think about it this way. If I don't get my way, I'm not happy. If I don't get to choose, I'm not happy. Now, there's another word for this. It's a biblical word. Are you ready for the biblical word? Selfish. 
Because if I don't get what I want, it's all about me. I and my personal desires is the highest good in my eyes and in my life. And then there's a fourth and final one. Happiness is not a destination. Leave this up for a second. Happiness is not a destination. I think a lot of us think that if I just get to a certain place, I would be happy. But as we've already said, it's a moving target. It does not stay in one place. And we've already said that it is in conflict with itself, so it cannot be a destination. In fact, this was proven and shown to be true in the life of a man. Leave this up for now. In the life of a man named Viktor Frankl. Viktor Frankl was a renowned Jewish psychologist who was taken into the Nazi concentration camps during World War II. He survived, but his wife, who was pregnant at the time, who went in, she did not survive. His parents did not survive. And he witnessed the horrors of the war. But when he came out, he began to reflect on why is it that some people seem to survive the horrors of the concentration camp and others do not. And he began to think about it and talk to people. And he wrote this seminal book called Man's Search for Meaning. It is one of my all-time favorite books. Because in it, what he basically does is he looks and he comes to the conclusion that people whose purpose in life is happiness... Do not survive the trials of life intact. But the people who have a purpose beyond their happiness, even in a horrible place like a concentration camp, they can survive. And so this morning, I simply want to say, what is the purpose of your marriage? It is not happiness. It is nowhere near happiness. But if you pursue the purpose that we're going to talk about for the next few minutes, you may just find happiness sneaking up alongside of you and something deeper as well. In fact, this is what Christ is going to demonstrate and what we read about in Ephesians 5. But this morning, I want to take you to the beginning, to Genesis chapter 2. Turn with me quickly. Genesis 2 will be at the very end of it. I'm going to invite you, bring your Bibles on Sunday. I will refer to it from time to time, so you'll want to have it with you, okay? But Genesis chapter 2, these are the words. And I want to give you a picture of what it is That if we will understand this purpose of marriage, it will change everything. If you're looking for a future spouse, you need to hear this. If you're dating, you need to hear this. And if you are married, and especially in a dark place, you need to hear this. These are the words of the Lord from Genesis chapter 2. A little context. God has made everything perfect. Sky, sea, and everything in between. He finally makes man. And coming into this, he says, I'm going to put you in the garden. You've got a job to do. But then he looks around and he says, it's not good that man is alone. He said, everything else is good. The sky has its companion of the land. You have fish who have the companion of birds. You have the moon's companion of the sun. But this one person, this one being, man, does not have his complement. And so God says, I'm going to create his complement. But before he does it, he brings this visual aid so that Adam understands what he's about to get. By the way, the name Adam, Adam, is the Hebrew word for humanity. In other words, he's the prototype of everything else. So what applies to him will apply to us. And so God brings all the animals and Adam begins to do the great big naming exercise. And he comes to the conclusion that God already knew, which is that there is no one like me for me. Adam is alone. And before we go any further, here's what you need to know. This is why at the heart of every person, at the very core, is this hunger to know someone and be known by someone, to have community with people. This isn't about a sexual relationship. This is about simple companionship. 
And isn't it true that you can be in a crowded room and still be completely alone? What Scripture is about to describe for us is the heartbeat of every person, whether you're an extrovert or introvert. And so God puts Adam to sleep. And when he wakes up, he sees this beautiful one who's like him. And, and I can almost imagine he sees woman and he begins to evaluate. He's like, wait, you've got opposable thumbs like me. That's awesome. You don't have a tail. That's really, really awesome because that'd be kind of strange. And he begins to see that she is just like him. In this beautiful passage in verse 24 and verse 25, it says this, for this reason. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. In these verses, we begin to unpack the picture and the purpose of marriage. And if you will get this, it'll change everything. There's a few things that begin to jump out from the very get-go. The first, before God gave Adam a wife, God gave Adam a job. Hint, hint, men, get a job. In fact, ladies, just a little piece of advice. If you're not yet married, let me just sort of talk to some of our single ladies. If you're not yet married, here's what you do. That hairy-legged young man leans over. He whispers those three little words in your ear. I love you. You just lean back, and you whisper three little words back. Get a job. The beginning, before anything else happens... Before God gives Adam a partner, write this down. Before God gives Adam a partner, God gives Adam a purpose. In verse 15, God puts Adam in the garden to cultivate that part of the universe. He, Adam, is the small little image bearer of God. And as the image bearer of God will do on a small scale what God has done on a cosmic scale. And that is to bring the beauty and the goodness of God into all of creation. In other words, you, before you get married, already have a job. And that is to bring the goodness of God into the place that God has put you. That is why you're here. And a person will not complete you or keep you from fulfilling that role because that is God's gift and design for you. Now, God looks and he says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. I find it interesting that even in a patriarchal society where you would expect a woman would be called from her family, it is the man who's called to leave his family. It's almost as though God knew some thousands of years later there would be a bunch of boys who would need to be encouraged to leave mom and daddy's house and strike out on their own. So get a job and leave mom and daddy's house. Step one, step two, you're welcome. This is the start to relationship. But there are other things here. Did you notice that beautiful phrase? It says, and the two shall become one. Literally, that happens in childbirth. You win a child, the mom and the dad become one through this new life. This is why, parents, isn't it true when your child does something that annoys you, you look at your spouse and you say, she's just like you. And then, mamas, isn't it true that when your little boy does something weird or distinctly dudish, you look at your husband and say, that's, that's you, that, you deal with it, Right? Because what you're seeing is the two have become one. It happens literally, but it also happens spiritually in the intimate act of sex. We'll talk about that in a couple weeks. That literally there's a mingling of souls, as the Hebrews will call it. 
And then finally, did you notice that last thing? He says, they were naked and felt no shame. Now, now I know, as soon as I say that word, some of us are feeling kind of weird because that's just a weird word. So we're just going to kind of break the ice here. On the count of three, I need you all just kind of help me out here. See this word right here? Okay, on the count of three, I just need you to say it out loud. Okay, real, real, first service blew the roof off. I just want you to know what you're up against. So on the count of three, help me out. One, two, three. And in the South, it's not naked, but naked. Exactly. Now, if you're like me and you grew up in church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, you were there for Tuesday morning ladies Bible class, you were there all week long, you had to find ways to amuse yourself when the preacher got going. And so for me and my buddies, we'd sit together and we'd look up funny phrases in the hymnals. Anyone else do that by chance? You're like, that's funny. No? Okay. We'd also do it with Bible verses. And right here is one of the funniest words in the entire Bible, and it's in the second chapter. So you'd find, you'd show your buddy, he'd start giggling. Your mama, because this was back in the day when parents would beat you with anything they could get their hands on, would reach over and, didn't matter if it wasn't your kid. Mom, mom. And you try to explain, well, mama, I'm just reading the Bible. Didn't matter. You still got thumped. Funny thing is, we laughed at that word when we were little, didn't we? But isn't it true that now, like when you're older, you see this phrase and you don't laugh, you just kind of sigh and go, man, to be fully vulnerable and the other person's not leaving me. And I want that. This is the picture of what God has designed every person in a marital relationship to enjoy. But the thing that will thwart your deepest heart desire is the wrong-headed belief that your relationship is about your happiness. Friend, it is not about your happiness. It is about two becoming one to fulfill the purpose of God, to bring the presence of God into the places where they live, work, and play. And when you're running after that and your spouse is running after that, no matter how different you two may be, if you have the same goal, you will grow together as the years go on. This is a picture that God gives us, and it only happens, it only happens in one particular way. Now listen, this word naked, let me just give you some words to think about. The word is to be honest, to be transparent, to be yourself, to not have to wear a mask or pretend you're better than you're not. See, here's the thing, if your marriage is about your happiness, if your dating relationship is about your happiness, if your work relationships is only about your happiness, here's what will always be true. You will always be auditioning for the relationship. You know what an audition is? You look your best, you act your best, so you'll get the role. And the most painful thing is to be in a marriage in particular where you feel like you're constantly auditioning, putting on the makeup to cover up the warts and bruises because you don't know if the other one is there forever. You don't know if you can be fully naked and fully known, and yet this is the heartbeat of everyone. This is the desire of every man, every woman, and it begins in every child. You say, okay, okay, so how do we do this? How do we do this? Here's how. There's this word. There's this word we use, and it actually happens as part of our typical marriage ceremonies. Do you know what, it's that point where people begin to make promises to each other. Do you know what that time in the wedding is called? You're sharing vows, right? Now listen, listen, listen. 
Can you imagine a marriage ceremony where the vows were about their happiness? So you come in, you've dressed up, you've pulled out that one suit that you own because we don't wear suits anymore. You come in, you sit down, you've got the gift, you're ready. The bride comes in, you're just so excited. You're like, oh, and they begin this moment. And the vows begin and the wife looks at her husband and she says, I will love you forever so long as you always make $60,000 or more. And he responds, I'll love you forever so long as you don't gain any weights. How would you respond in that moment? You'd grab your gifts and say, this is going back to the store. Because a marriage that begins saying, it's about my happiness, will not last. It is one that is built on a foundation that cannot last because happiness is a moving target. Happiness is not a destination. Happiness is in conflict with itself, but instead, instead, what do we hear? We hear promises like, well, do you know some of the promises? In sickness and in what? For richer or in good times and bad. Till death do us part. That's this, isn't it? There's a word for it in Scripture. It's called covenant. A covenant, to put this up, a covenant is a promise between two or more persons to do or not do something specific. It's this promise that says, no matter what happens, I'm with you, you're with me. We are in this together. This is the picture because when you say, I'm here for the purpose of God, not my personal happiness, what ends up happening is you're able to make promises in line with the purpose of God that no matter what may happen, you can fulfill the purpose of God. I love the fact that last, uh, last night when we were sitting here and we we're listening to Alan who has cared for his sweet wife for these years as she's had Alzheimer's, his happiness was not what he was pursuing, his purpose of cultivating beauty and God's goodness wherever he was, including by taking care of his wife. He could do that even if he could not get all the happiness he wants in every moment. In other words, your happiness can go away, but the purpose of God may never go away. This is the purpose of marriage. In fact, covenant simply says, I'm just not going anywhere. Saying, you are stuck with me. It is the most beautiful moment when a husband and wife say, we are together no matter what? I was thinking about this. I, I, I can still remember that moment when Lindsay said yes. I asked her to marry me, and I was so excited when I said it, I jumped up and gave her a hug and didn't, I, I don't think she said yes. I just like hugged her and made the assumptive hug, so now she's stuck. You, you, it's, it's a great move, fellas. Okay. But she said yes then, and I was like, oh, she said Yes. And she, like, said it and, like, really meant it. She wasn't, like, playing a trick on me. You know that moment also? Or is that just me? Okay, so. And I remember the moment when the doors opened and she was really standing there. It wasn't like someone saying, sorry, dude, she really, she's bolted. She came down and where she said, I'm here, I'm here. And to be able to say that no matter what happens, we are together. That happiness is not the goal. It is the purposes of God lived out in each person that God then can provide things. And here's what's incredible. I think my wife is a physically stunning person. She's beautiful. She's got the best eyes. I think she's gorgeous. And she's got prettier, I think, over the years. But it's not because she's had some work done or something to gussy up the outside. 
It's because over the years we have partnered together in the ministry of God. And as I witness her in that environment, she becomes more and more beautiful. We have two kids. I love them to death. But some days it is good that I'm not the only parent. Wink at me if you know what I mean by that. And what I love about my wife is there have been moments where she has come alongside them and she does these things where she'll get down and, and she'll be like, well, one of our kids will be upset. And she'll be like, well, are, are you, are you, how are you feeling? They're like, I don't know. Well, do you want to hit something or do you want to cry? I want to hit something. Okay, that's called anger. Let's talk about it. And she begins to draw them out and I watch the way she interacts with them and I'm just like, I, I just want to kiss you right now. Because in this moment, I'm witnessing someone fulfilling the purpose for which she was created, and she is doing it beautifully. Hear me now. When you pursue happiness, you don't get it. But when you pursue the covenant of purpose before God, God often throws happiness in as well. And if you've been married any years, you know that to be true. I went to the hospital a couple nights ago to visit Brad Jones. Brad is the member of our church who has the seeing eye dog that you've seen many times. Please pray for Brad. He is on a ventilator. He's not doing well. But I went up to the hospital a couple nights ago before they put him on the vent. And he was just laying there and, and, and he, he said, yeah, I just thank you, thank you, thank you to his wife. And she goes, I wouldn't be anywhere else. I'm not going anywhere. This is the heart's desire of every person to know that there's someone else in your foxhole for life. And so this is where we begin. We begin with this covenant. So with the final thing, I'll say this. Put commitment, put covenant, put the purpose before your happiness. And by God's grace, you'll end up with both. But start here before going here. This is where we start. It's not where you're going to finish. Next week, I'm going to talk to those of you who are maybe in process saying, I'm looking for someone. What do I look for? How do I do that? We're going to talk about that in a couple weeks. We're going to talk about this gift of sex and what that looks like in a healthy marriage. But here's what I want you to hear tonight, today, is that it begins with the commitment that says, I'm not going anywhere. I'm in this because that stake is my purpose, not my happiness. So this morning, as we... Begin to wrap up our time. We're going to give you a moment just to process this. I'm going to ask you to put your feet flat on the floor, kind of steady yourself. You may want to just lean back, take a couple deep breaths. If you need to close your eyes, that's okay. You can do that. But here's what I'm going to invite you to do for just a moment. Consider what is it you're pursuing as your utmost Are you pursuing happiness or are you pursuing the purpose of God? And what I would invite you to do is say, God, I've been chasing it. I'm not getting it. I need your help. Name the place where the happiness is taking precedent. And in this moment, this may be a time simply to tell the Father, I thank you that you did not pursue your happiness, but you came for me anyway. That on the cross, the bride, the church was before Christ's eyes so that our groom, Jesus Christ, said, I will lay down my life because my purpose, my reason for being here on earth is to cultivate, to bring about the goodness of God for the church, for my bride. This is why Ephesians 5 tells us that husbands are to be like Jesus who would do anything it took 
even laying down his life for his bride because purpose, the purpose of God to cultivate where he is, where you are, is what God is calling you into. And so now just ask God, God, what is it? Am I, am I pursuing happiness or your purposes? And then I'm going to invite you to invite him to begin to show you where your purpose is on earth and how to lock arms with your wife or prepare to lock arms with your wife or husband. So let's pray together. With every eye closed and every head bowed, Father, we thank you that your purpose through Jesus Christ was effective and it saved us from our sins. We thank you that you have brought us close to you like your bride. What a beautiful picture throughout Scripture of our relationship with you is one of marriage. The covenant, the promises where you say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The Apostle Paul tells us that nothing in all creation can separate us from your love. And that on the cross, you said it's finished, that everything that once kept us apart has been paid for in full, and now we have relationship with you. Lord, I pray that for all my brothers and sisters, that they would they would pursue the purpose that you've given them. And as they do so, may they find that you are the God who shares great gifts, including happiness as we go along. May they pursue you. Be with each marriage. Lord, I'm, I pray for those marriages here that are doing so well this morning. We thank you for those. We celebrate that. But Father, we also, for those that are just hanging on by a thread, we beg you in Jesus' name, Would you hold them together and may they begin to pursue you more ferociously. And as they do so, they will find their love for one another and their happiness in one another growing. We praise you, Jesus. It's in your name that we pray.